Welcome. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Sargent. Welcome to pediatric. What? It's a rowdy group this morning. Welcome. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Written Rounds for um, April 8th, 2015. We are um, moving into April, whether be darned or damned. Next week's Pediatric Written Rounds, we get back to our uh, excellent scholars uh, with uh, Dr. Shashank Baher, a graduating resident, doing the price of fixing broken hearts, the evolution of survivorship and ethics in hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Uh, followed by Dr. Olivieri and Dr. Karen. Um, I had a great, I've had a nice string of, of kudos and notes come across my desk in the past couple of weeks. This was a, this was a message uh, to Pat Super, a nurse on the inpatient pediatric unit, who um, an email came to her supervisor making sure that they knew that she had taken time to speak Thank you for taking time to speak with me today when I called trying to collect with my baby's pediatrics office this Sunday morning. I was worried about Sid's risk because my eight-month-old has started to roll over onto his belly in his sleep. I especially appreciate that you took time out of your busy day to look up a resource for me so I could find specific information on the NIH website regarding this issue. You made a big difference in the life of a new mom today. So going the extra mile when they could have been kicked back could have been kicked back to the call center and said, it's not my responsibility to talk to your doctor's office on a Sunday morning. If you see Pat on the ward, uh, uh, thank her. Uh, we have thanks today also for Dr. Gladstone for stepping in and pinch hitting a, a little bit of last minute. Uh, it was not initially scheduled to, to come give grand rounds today, but was, was a willing participant uh, to teach us on a, a topic relevant to children at risk, which was... Tomorrow's conference, by the way, I'll put in a plug, tomorrow's Children at Risk is, I think the, the theme is adolescents are also at harm, and we do have a visiting speaker coming for that tomorrow all day, I want to say it's probably here, and here in ENF, I bet you could walk in and register at the last, no, no, sorry, sorry, Joan. Or over full, so no invitations, if you haven't signed up yet, you'll miss, you'll have to sign up for next year. Thanks, Joan. So, same month, same place, annual conference. So Dr. Gladstone is, um, is a member of our faculty and has been for quite some time, but is uh, uh, basically a New Yorker who somehow we converted into a New Hampshire, uh, a native New Englander, born in New York and um, did her undergraduate at Vassar College and then medical school at the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Columbia. Stayed in New York City for um, her residency at Babies Hospital and somehow Boston drew her for Adolescent Medicine Fellowship, where she uh, remained on the faculty actually for a good 25 years teaching in the fellowship where I, where I trained. Uh, but she built a very active um, and involved and committed career in pediatrics on the seacoast as well as statewide with numerous, numerous leadership roles in state and regional and national American Academy of Pediatrics committees, in, uh, including the NHPS. Um, she has because of that active career and contributions both clinically and regionally has won numerous awards. I'll highlight just a couple. So certainly starting out as Phi Beta Kappa from Vassar and Alpha Omega Alpha from Columbia, um, I'm um, excited because she's been a best doctor in America numerous times, but won the Selma Deitch Commemorative Award for Exemplary Medical Practice for Children and Families served by DCYF in 2004. And um, we've, we've uh, referenced Dr. Deitch's work at Child Health Services at this venue on a couple of occasions. She won the New Hampshire Hospital Association James A. Hamilton Founders Award for integrity and consistent commitment uh, to her associates and patients for human health and well-being and to the local community, state, or nation. She received um, national awards both from the section on child abuse and neglect from the American Academy of Pediatrics and a special achievement award in June 2014. Um, so we really are blessed to have Wendy as a member of our faculty. I'm wearing this tie, which, may, which Dr. Gladstone may or may not remember. She presented as the New Hampshire Pediatric Society president to our graduating residents in, in the spring of 2000. I guess that was a tradition you started. So I, I've had this tie for a long time. We might need to update it. But <laughs> Wendy, thanks for, thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you.
Good morning, everybody. Um, I'll start with the usual disclaimer that I have no financial relationships to disclose, and I'm not going to be discussing the use of any off-label off -label drugs this morning. My objectives are that <clears throat> by the time we get to 9 a.m., you will all be able to document patient encounters in a way that is both understandable and defensible in a legal setting, that you will know how to participate appropriately if you are called to testify about a patient, that you will recognize the impact of irresponsible medical testimony on patient care. And that is all going to happen if you aren't buried in your iPhone email list and you don't fall asleep because you were on call last night. So how did it go from what we all started pediatrics with, which is an interest in cute little kids and making them healthy, to having to appear at a custody hearing as part of a contentious divorce, um, participating in a DCYF. For those of you who maybe don't know, that means Division for Children, Youth, and Families, New Hampshire's Child Protection Agency, um, or maybe in Vermont, since we see lots of patients from across the river. Uh, a DCYF adjudication for protection from abusive parents, a confidential court proceeding for a juvenile who has committed a crime, uh, a deposition for criminal prosecution, or a trial appearance before a judge and jury, or has happened to me, unbeknownst until after it was done, that I was on television. So that could happen to you too. So how do you handle all of that? Some of you may feel like if you get called to court that you're like a fish out of water. How many people here have ever been called to testify in a criminal court? Okay. How many have all been called to testify in a civil court? How many people have been called to court and don't know really what kind of court it was that they were in? <laughs> that happens too, right. Okay. Um, so we're going to go through all of that. Courts are defined according to what kind of cases they hear. So there's a big division between civil court, which are matters that have to do with things like child custody and parental rights, and torts of, with small monetary differences between one party and another, um, and mil uh, excuse me, criminal courts, which have to do with breaking of state criminal codes. Uh, courts are divided up geographically, which makes them district courts. Some of them are focused exclusively on issues having to do with families. We call those, of course, family courts. Um, there are federal courts, which are <clears throat> the courts that you go to if you've been accused of breaking a federal law as opposed to a state law. Um, superior courts are the courts that review everybody else's work and tell them when they've done it right. Um, and then, of course, we have... Um, military courts, which is where you've been accused of breaking some sort of law in the military system. Um, and if you find out that you're going to be appearing in one of these, uh, then typically your reaction is apt to be this, um, because all of us are afraid, including me, and I've been to court a lot, of the possibility that there will be some sort of brutal cross-examination in which all your inadequacies will be displayed to the world, that you will be humiliated, and you will maybe have a hypertensive crisis. So um, it can even be worse, though, if you're a kid and you have to go to court. And that's why courts have, both for you and for children, victim witness advocates. Um, and I'm not talking about the therapy dog here. I am talking about the nice lady in the chair. Um, a victim witness advocate is somebody who's employed by the court specifically to help prepare witnesses when they're coming to trial, answer questions, schedule when they're going to be appearing, um, and they sort of like uh, assist you with all the things you might be worried about when they ask you to come to trial. So this is a good person to know if you ever get called um, to one of the courts in New Hampshire that has them, which is really all of the criminal courts, they don't pretty much exist in civil courts. They're really more people that you will meet on your um, travels through the criminal system. Uh, how do you know when you're getting an invitation to come to court? Not this kind of court, the kind of court that happens um, uh, behind the American flag and the seal of New Hampshire. So you might get a call from a child protection worker uh, or from a police officer or from a prosecutor or other lawyer 
you might get a call from a GAL. Um, this is not an invitation for a date. It's not a gal calling you up. A GAL is a guardian ad litem, which is a lawyer appointed by the court to represent the interests of a child. And typically, they're involved when there's some sort of contentious parental thing going on. You might also get a call from a parent or other relative who wants you to come and testify to help their side of what is often a contentious divorce and custody hearing. You might get a formal request, request for records. You might get a subpoena, which is a paper document that directs you to appear in court on a particular day and time about a particular matter. And you might also get other kind of a notice to appear at what's called a deposition, which I'm going to explain to you later, but is basically a sort of pre-court event, which is just as important as court, but doesn't actually take place in a courtroom. Now, why is somebody asking you to come to court in the first place? Um, probably it's because you have some kind of knowledge about a given child's situation. And that may be because you were what's called a fact witness. A fact witness is someone who has witnessed something of importance to the court when it's trying to decide um, what has happened involving a child. And you just happen to be there when something happened. So you might have just happened to be rotating through the ward on that particular day when something happened with a child. Hopefully you weren't peering in the family's window. But um, a fact witness really has some kind of fact to report, like this was the result of the x-ray. Or you might be an expert witness. Now, um, probably few people in this audience consider themselves experts at much of anything. But like this guy, there is always some aspect of the world that you are an expert at, which the court defines as knowing more than the average person. So by definition, because we're all involved in the medical care of children, we're all experts in pediatrics. Um, and in the eyes of the law, you have to prove that you are an expert when you go to court in various ways. And that includes things like explaining that you have um, a, an education in pediatrics or whatever the field is, that you've had additional training, and you've had experience. So education, training, and experience are how you show the court, meaning the judge, that you are an expert in something. Now, hopefully, when you are called as an expert, um, you are going to be explaining something to the judge in a way that is neutral in terms of the two sides that are having some sort of discussion in the courtroom. So it shouldn't matter whether the prosecutor asked you to come and explain why 16 fractures in a two-week-old is concerning. Um, or whether the defense asks you to come and explain why this couldn't be child abuse. Good luck. But at any rate, it shouldn't matter who called you to testify. You should be blind, in other words, like this statue, to anything other than weighing um, the evidence in a scientific kind of way. Unfortunately, there are experts who come to trial, and they're handsomely paid to do something a little bit different, which is to slant what they are observing and to slant the medical literature in a way that favors one side or the other. As long as you remember that what you're trying to do is to be impartial and present the facts as facts without embellishment, then you won't get into trouble when you're asked to be an expert at something. Um, I just put this little chart up here to talk about what's the same and different about a fact witness and an expert witness. So a fact witness will explain what they saw, what they did, what they said, and so forth and so on. Um, they are not allowed to give an opinion about anything. So a fact witness may say, um, I was in the parking lot and I saw this father smack the kid in the head and then the child fell to the ground and the ambulance came and carried them into the emergency room. Um, so you are allowed to say the facts that you observed. You're not allowed to say, I call that child abuse, because that's an opinion. Um, meanwhile, an expert witness, after explaining why they are qualified to be a witness and being recognized as such, can give their opinion. Um, fact witnesses are paid in the state of New Hampshire 
according to what is a standard witness fee, which means that if you are called to court as a fact witness, you're entitled to the compensation of $32 per day, which means since it's rare that a fact witness spends that kind of time on the stand, that you typically get um, a little bit less than that when they send you the check in the mail. Meanwhile, expert witness may charge the person or entity which called them, um, they may charge them an expert witness fee, which can be anything from doing it gratis to charging thousands of dollars per day to appear in a trial. Um, as I said, factness, uh, fact witnesses can't give their own opinion. They also cannot give an opinion about what they think somebody else was thinking about or why they acted that way. And the same thing is true of an expert witness. You're not allowed to speculate what somebody was thinking about because you don't know or what their motive might have been, even though you might have a very good idea what it was. And the other thing that neither a fact witness nor an expert witness can talk about is how believable the child was. Deciding whether a child's statements are believable or not is up to the jury or the judge. So you will never be asked that question in court, and you shouldn't volunteer that information in court, because um, that is considered something that's not your role. Whoops. So how, do you, how did they know that you're the person they were supposed to call? Well, uh, maybe you wrote a note in the chart. Maybe somebody else put your name in their note. Um, maybe they want you to come with uh, your expert opinion to explain something to the judge or to the jury. Or maybe a parent thinks that if you show up in court that that's going to bolster their claims about custody, visitation, or whatever. So if they're calling you because you wrote a note in the chart, you want to be sure that the note you wrote is legally sound and that you don't embarrass yourself. Um, a good starting point is something that we shall be remembering anyway, which is that any note that's ever written in a medical record could become public. So you want to stay away from anything that might be read by anyone as um, adverse to them or non-complimentary or perhaps even insulting. Um, so you want to be accurate. You also want to be kind. But you want to stay away from the kind of obsequious language you sometimes read in notes where everybody is always pleasant and always trying to be helpful. I see these kinds of um, notes in child abuse charge, and they can be really difficult. Um, you also want to write a note that you can read. Um, this is actually written in Chinese, but it looks like a lot of notes that we see in, from providers that don't have the nice electronic medical records that we have in EPIC. Not everybody is privileged to have such a thing. So if you do have to handwrite something, make sure it's legible. Um, you want to avoid obfuscatory verbiage, which means hard to understand words, because if, the, if your um, note is made public in a court of law, it's going to really confuse people if you use medical terminology that they don't know what you're talking about. Similarly, you want to avoid CMAs, which are confusing medical acronyms. And even using things like PCP can be confusing when you have to end up explaining what you did in a court of law. A third general rule is to avoid templates or macros that have embedded complementary language about someone who might turn out to need a different kind of descriptor. So um, we recently had a case at another hospital I was involved with where one particular nurse, every note she ever wrote about this very abusive mother was, mother is pleasant, attentive to the needs of the child, and asks appropriate questions of the staff where none of that ever happened. Um, but it was pretty clear from reading her notes that it repeated over and over and over and over again. So when you're writing to describe a parent and the interaction with a child, it helps to be original. In other words, try to say something new every day or in some way shed some light about what you're noticing. If it's complimentary, sure, go ahead and write that. But if you're noticing that um, when you come into the room, the mother is never holding the child, even when the child's crying, or makes comments like, well, he doesn't like it when I pick him up. He rather 
cry it out in the crib. You know, that's an important piece of information to put into your note. Um, a fourth suggestion when you're writing a legally sound note is not to do this, but um, this is the differential diagnosis of a medical condition. When you're seeing a child, particularly when the question is whether this is child maltreatment or not, say the child presents with subdural hematomas, and you're saying, oh, subdural hematomas in a four-month-old, that is child abuse. You want to have a differential diagnosis, and then you want to go through a thought process showing why you considered all the unlikely possibilities, like this child was born with osteogenesis imperfecta, um, fatal type, because here they are eight months old, and that would not explain why they have 10 fractures, as an example. So you want to make sure that you go through a differential diagnosis and explain in a logical fashion how you excluded things. If your note contains references to the fact that child maltreatment was a consideration, you want to be sure in your note that you write down that you did make a report to the Division for Children, Youth, and Families, or in Vermont, to their equivalent. Or you need to document why you didn't make a report. This becomes important because sometimes when I go to court about a case, um, they're very happy to pull out a note that somebody wrote, could be child abuse, could be Munchausen by proxy. But there's no reference in there as to whether the person then took it to the next step to decide well, I think it's unlikely because, so I didn't report, or I did report and made a call to the Division for Children, Youth, and Families. doesn't mean you shouldn't reference child abuse as a possible diagnosis, but it does mean that if you do, you need to say what sort of appropriate steps you took in that case. Now, when you get to court, the American legal system is an, an adversarial system. And sometimes it feels like this is what's going on in the courtroom, which is that one side is attacking the other and vice versa. And even though it seems really like we've gone back to the 17th century somehow, in fact, it is arguably said that the American legal system is the best one in the whole world. So there are some advantages to presenting two sides of a case and letting a fair person or group of persons decide what should be the decision on it. But that's basically how our system works. When you go to um, court and you have to decide, well, which is the right opinion here, then there has to be some degree of surety. So either the judge or the jury has to decide, I'm sure enough that such and such a thing happened, um, that that's reasonably certain. Or they might use language like, I am certain enough beyond any reasonable doubt that this thing happened. These are two standards of surety <clears throat> excuse me, that are used in courts routinely. The first explanation or definition of how sure a person is is the standard that's used typically in a civil court hearing. Um, to reasonable degree of medical certainty means, of all the possibilities, this one's more likely than not to have happened. And some people say, well, if there's a 51% chance um, that this uh, person abused this child, then they rule that as a case of child abuse in a civil court. So that means where DCYF goes to ask a judge to intervene in a case. Beyond any reasonable doubt is the standard that they use in a criminal court. So if somebody is accused of, for example, shaking an infant and causing brain injury, in order for the jury to decide, yes, we're sure this is what happened, they have to be sure beyond any reasonable doubt. And what percent that is, nobody knows. And if you ask a prosecutor or a defense lawyer, they will not give you a percent. But it generally means that any reasonable person could not have a doubt about what happened. Um, it's important to remember that in medicine, as we all know, there are some conditions that are pretty rare. So if we say that there's a chance of one in a million that there's some other explanation, we have to remember that in a city like New York, there'll be eight people who have that condition, because there are 8 million people who live in New York. And in the entire country, there are 319 million people, so one in a million is 319 people. Um, so it doesn't mean there's zero chance, it just means beyond any reasonable doubt. 
one strategy to try to persuade a judge or a jury that there is a reasonable doubt or that it's impossible to think that this is um, to a, a degree of medical certainty is to try to make the judge or the jury question or confused about what exactly is going on. And that's really what um, irresponsible medical testimony is about. It's trying to create a false sense of confusion in the jury about what happened. Now, obviously, you can have the same facts and people can look at them different ways. So just as you can shine a light on a cylinder and either see it as a square or a circle, depending what your vantage point is, the same thing is true about the facts in a case. That's why, as I say, there are always two sides to every story. And in a responsible court of law, both sides will present the evidence and their interpretation, and it's up to the judge or the jury to decide, well, which one is the right one. But there are, unfortunately, um, people out there who provide irresponsible medical testimony, which is where somebody has sort of an imaginary thought about why something is the way it is, which is okay if you're looking at clouds and trying to decide if it looks like a ducky or a horsey, but it's not so good when you're um, in court and trying to explain medical literature to people. Um, so irresponsible medical testimony is imaginative medicine without scientific backing. And unfortunately, there are irresponsible people out there, um, some of whom are paid very well to go to court and make people confused. A typical description of somebody who provides irresponsible medical testimony would be somebody who's well-educated, well-spoken, thought of as a scientist by the lay public, or um, a medical professional. And they review the case, and they suggest some alternative theory to the one you've carefully come up with after you went through your differential diagnosis <laughs> and all your lab testing, an alternate theory of causation of the findings. Um, this person is typically someone who doesn't have experience in pediatrics. There are exceptions to that. But very commonly, the people who come to court with irresponsible testimony are pathologists or adult medical practitioners and they don't have experience with what we have, which is the range of normality in children from infancy to young adulthood. They often extrapolate adult medical principles to children. And as we all know, children are not little adults, so that doesn't always work. Um, if their theories are um, supported, they may be supported by lay articles um, or by articles in non-peer-reviewed journals. They're not supported by what we think of as the scientific literature. And their published works are cited in such a way that either don't apply to the case or perhaps, as I said, they don't appear in peer-reviewed journals. One example of this is the um, excitement that happened several years ago when there was this condition that was brought before the courts called temporary brittle bone disease, which was an attempted explanation for why some infants would come to the hospital, be discovered to have lots of broken bones, get put in foster care where they never had another broken bone. And the explanation by this British physician, Colin Patterson, was that they had a temporary condition um, which made them susceptible to fracture, and then when they got into foster care, that temporary condition went away. Only the temporary condition wasn't the person that abused them. It was this inner metabolic problem. So he presented his idea at the fourth International Cons Conference of Osteogenesis Imperfecta in 1990, and he published an article about it in the American Journal of Medical Genetics, which, boy, does that sound good to a jury, except it wasn't peer-reviewed. And what he did was describe 39 patients he'd seen over a 10-year period. Um, they only had fractures in the first year of life, which means that they had some sort of temporary period in their life where they had fractures. So that's where he got the idea of temporary brittle bone disease. Um, he initially wrote about this condition, this disorder reflects a temporary collagen defect and is probably caused by a temporary deficiency of an, probably noticed, of an enzyme perhaps a metalloenzyme involved in the post-translational processing of collagen. That sounds really good to a jury. This guy knows what he's talking about. Um, however, none of these three postulates have ever been substantiated by scientific data or corroborated in any peer-reviewed medical journal. 
And at first he thought, well, you know, there's just not enough copper here. So he proposed that temporary brittle bone disease was a, deficient cop was a deficiency of copper-containing enzyme lysyl oxidase. But there wasn't actually any scientific evidence supporting that. So then he said, well, maybe it's actually copper deficiency. And they measured serum copper in the 39 patients he had, but only three of them actually had the test, and two of them had normal copper levels. Um, so he even used this theory to explain why some infants had shearing brain injury and multiple fractures of different ages, including posterior rib fractures and metaphyseal corner fractures, which, as we know, have very high specificity for abuse, um, and which all went away when they were in an environment um, that was protected and suggested they all had temporary brittle, brittle bone disease. Well, fortunately, people eventually figured out that um, this was very irresponsible. He was struck from the medical record because of this, which in England is like losing your medical license. But he did testify in cases, and there were assaultive people whose charges were dismissed, and there were children returned to abusive caretakers. So it didn't have, even though eventually the truth caught up with him, um, it did have a negative effect for many families. Um, this is why it's important to know that sometimes you may run into people like this who are presenting irresponsible testimony. Even though you may know that they're going to eventually be found out, it can be a problem when you're sitting in a court of law with them. Um, more recently, there's a neurosurgeon, Dr. Ronald Jasinski, who's been censured by the American Association of Neurological Sur uh, Surgeons for unprofessional conduct um, because of the kinds of irresponsible medical testimony he has given in a lot of shaken baby cases. So um, sometimes these people are found out and are stopped, but they are still exist out there. Um, so it's possible that you may run into some of them. Now, what is a judge supposed to do about that? How is a judge supposed to figure out that the testimony somebody's giving is responsible or irresponsible, right? I mean, they're not a medical person. Well, there's actually um, legal rules for judges to follow to help them decide when is testimony reliable and when isn't it. Um, and unlike uh, medicine, which always gets it right, um, there are people who will promote things like feeding Coca-Cola to babies or some other medical intervention that we know doesn't make any sense. Um, the first rule that I'll mention is the so-called Fry rule. The, the Fry rule involved a trial involving a person named Fry who questioned the scientific validity of lie detector tests. Now, this was over 80 years ago. And the question was, are lie detectors scientifically valid and admissible as evidence in a court of law? And as a result of that trial, it was decided that testimony is considered reliable if the principles used or described in the person's testimony have general acceptance as reliable in the relevant scientific community. Um, which is why if you go to court and you say, um, this child was covered with bruises, and we know that children don't get covered with bruises in the absence of a coagulation defect, um, except in the case of child abuse, you may be asked, well, is that a generally accepted rule um, standard in your profession? And you say, yes, and it's accepted by the scientific community because we have studies that um, support that. And so then you would be allowed to testify about that under the Fry rule. Um, the other kind of rule is called Dobert, and you will often hear about what are called Dobert hearings, where before a trial, a judge will try to decide if the testimony that somebody is planning to give on the stand is scientifically reliable. The Dobert rule says that the person who decides whether you allow somebody to come into court, sit on the witness stand, and expound their beliefs, um, the judge is the one who is the gatekeeper for that. And the judge decides if the testimony is relevant and reliable. And the guidelines for the judge are, can the theory or technique be tested? Um, has it been subjected to peer review or publication? Is there a known or potential error rate for the theory? And is there general acceptance in the relevant scientific community? Um, so for an example, Somebody um, may take care of a baby who's clearly got all the classical signs of shaken baby syndrome, abusive head trauma, 
and maybe planning to go to court to explain that to a judge. And the defense attorney jumps up and says, I want a Dobear hearing to see if it's scientifically valid, because as we all know, uh, shaken baby syndrome is an uh, invention and doesn't really exist. And so the judge has to decide if they're going to let you come in and explain that in a court of law. So they'll have a Dobear hearing in which somebody who's planning to explain why this is shaken baby syndrome has to bring in the relevant scientific literature and present that to the judge so the judge can say, yes, there's actually scientific backing for this theory that you have. And so, yes, you can explain this when we have the trial. Now, what do you do when you get this in the mail, which is a letter from a lawyer asking for any and all medical records, which is apt to make your blood pressure go very high? Um, the first thing that you should do is, is take a big breath and first find out, number one, if they sent it to the right person and is the patient listed in the letter somebody that you actually saw. You can actually get rid of some of these letters that way because they ask you to come incorrectly. Um, most of the time when you get a letter in the mail like this, it's because somebody's suing an insurance company and they want you to say, yes, they really did break their leg in that accident. Um, but sometimes it is actually something where you're going to have to end up going into court. Um, what happens next is something called discovery. Discovery um, does not mean discovering a new country. Discovery means that both sides of the case that's uh, headed for some sort of legal discussion is going to be exposing to the other side all of the information, all of the data, all of the evidence they have so that the prosecution shows it all to the defense, the defense shows it all to the prosecution. Everybody has a chance to read everything, look it over, so that when court happens, people are well prepared to understand what are the facts of a particular case. It's a little bit like putting all the cards down on the table. It's like instead of playing bridge, holding your hands, everybody puts all the cards down on the table so you know everybody else has, um, and you can help understand things in the fairest way possible. Discovery means that if somebody asks for any and all medical records, you had better send them any and all medical records. So if you keep most of the records in Epic, but you should never do this, but you keep a separate file somewhere because it's got all the confidential stuff that you don't want somebody to um, potentially be um, accidentally be released if somebody asks for the records. If you have a secondary record like that, you have to show that if the case is going to trial. Um, if somebody asks you for any and all medical records and you work here, it's very easy. You call risk management and you call medical information and they take care of it for you. But if you practice somewhere else, you have to be sure that the records you give are complete. Um, because if you don't, it could really end up not being uh, pretty seen. It may be that you have information in somebody's chart that you think um, is so confidential that it shouldn't be discussed in a court of law. Um, I commonly have things like that in my records. So for example, when I see children, um, I may take photographs of their genitalia as part of photo documentation. And when I get a request for any and all medical records, I don't send those photographs. But I do send a letter that says, I have those photographs. And if the judge would like to review them under seal, or if the medical expert hired by the defense wants to review them, I will be very happy to share them. That way, at least they know that you're being forthright about discovery. So you can submit records under seal, which means that if you have records that you don't think it's appropriate for defense attorneys um, or prosecutors to have, that instead they go in a sealed envelope and they go to the judge and the judge reviews them behind closed doors and then decides whether there's something in here that um, really needs to be discussed and just take that one piece out and uh, try to keep the other things confidential. Okay, so um, you get up, you go to your office and there's this waiting for you outside. This is um, a sheriff coming to give you a subpoena. Uh, so a subpoena is a written piece of paper that tells you that you have been summoned to come to court. Subpoenas can be sent by prosecutors, they can be sent by defense attorneys, they can be um, fake subpoenas, unfortunately. So when you get one, you want to be sure that you call your risk management department, say I've got the subpoena, um, and try to decide what you should be doing next. 
<laughs> if you are subpoenaed, do you have to go? The answer is yes, you do. Um, the court will try to be accommodating. So if you hear in April that you're expected to come in November, but you had planned to go to Italy in November to go biking through the wine country, um, it's okay to say, I'm very sorry, I will be out of the country. Then they will probably move the trial to accommodate you, believe it or not. Um, if you just don't feel like going because that's the week that you usually like to take a personal week off, stay home, they probably will not accommodate you that way. But basically, yes, if you get a subpoena, you do have to go. Um, it's a good idea to call the source of the subpoena, discuss why you're being asked to come. I mean, if a prosecutor calls you because they want you to testify about this patient that you saw, you call the prosecutor and say, um, can you please help me understand what it is that you're expecting that I will do? Um, a well-prepared lawyer, whether it's a prosecutor or a defense lawyer, will give you a list of questions that they're planning to ask you when you're on the stand, so you can sort of prepare yourself ahead of time about that. Sometimes they, they think you can say something you can't, so it's good to tell them. It's not appropriate, I can't say that. It's, um, and so that's important for them to know ahead of time. That's why we have this thing called discovery. And if you're going to be testifying, it's a good idea to review relevant articles in the literature so that if somebody says to you, is that accepted in, in your field? Um, is that a testable hypothesis? Are there peer-reviewed publications? You can look really smart and say, why, yes, I happen to have just some copies here to share with you. If you do go to get involved in legal proceedings, um, it's a good idea to dress well when you go. It doesn't mean that you have to wear a suit, but you should wear something that promotes how you appear in a professional kind of way. Um, if you're used to wearing scrubs, I don't recommend it. If you're used to wearing even a white coat, I don't recommend that either. But remember that you're going to be presenting yourself to professionals, and you don't, at least don't want to look underdressed because they'll probably be there in suits anyway. Before you go to either testify at a deposition or a trial, you want to read your notes and really know them inside and out. It is OK to bring notes to a deposition or a trial. But anything that you bring to sit down at the deposition table or on the witness stand, it's okay for people to ask to hand it over and they copy it and keep it. Because they assume that you're using what's in the notes to refresh your memory and they want to be sure that you haven't put something down there that they haven't already found out about in discovery. So just be prepared and don't bring extraneous materials with you um, because they happen to be in your briefcase or they'll want to know about that too. Don't forget to go to the bathroom before you go and sit down at a deposition or trial, which um, sounds obvious, but sometimes you forget, so it's good to remind yourself. Um, adopt the power position before you enter, which means, does everybody know what the power position is? Um, if you stretch your arms way out like this and you know yawn, um, that's been shown to increase the levels of power hormones in your bloodstream and actually helps you calm down and relax. So it's a good thing to do as a way of sort of preparing yourself mentally. And then read your notes one more time, because inevitably they'll ask you something that you can't remember. Um, depositions can take place any place there's a conference room. So they can happen in your office. They can happen in the hospital. They can happen at the courthouse. And typically, there's you explaining things. There's a court stenographer writing everything down. There's um, the people who are representing the prosecution side, and there are people who are representing the defense side. Now, what are the rules? <laughs> the rule number one is tell the truth, which might seem like so obvious. But it's very easy to get pulled along by especially aggressive um, comments from uh, people on the other side, and you find yourself inching over and over and over toward things that you might really not know the answer to. So if they ask you about what you remember about how the parent interacted with the child and you can't remember, it's okay to say you don't remember. Or if they ask you a question about some article on um, some aspect of medical care and you haven't read it, it's okay to say you haven't read it. You're not expected to know everything. You're not expected to remember everything. So that's always the most important rule when you end up going to trial um, or a deposition. 
It's important to speak in plain language, all right? Remember that you're not speaking to um, a group of your colleagues. You're speaking to people with little medical training. So you don't want to use fancy words that are medical or even fancy words that aren't medical. Um, what happens if you're in a uh, position where you're testifying and it's very clear that you have all the power, you have all the information, this is an open and shut case, you don't know why they're even going to trial on this, why they didn't get a plea bargain. And so what is the strategy to try to change that in front of the eyes of a judge or a jury? Um, in other words, what do you do when there's just overwhelming evidence and, and you happen to be on the side that you want to be on in this situation? Well, there are various strategies for how to deal with that. Um, one is you can discredit the science that a person is testifying to. And so one way to do that would be for um, a defense attorney to ask you in front of a jury, aren't there doctors who are increasingly challenging whether shaken baby syndrome exists? Now, um, there are lots of terrific answers to that, but just the fact that somebody has said that means that the jury is going to be thinking, wow, there are doctors who really think it doesn't exist, so why are we even talking about this case? Um, they may try to discredit you as a witness, since all the scientific evidence is on your side and all the facts of the case are on your side. They'll try to make you personally look like you don't know what you're doing. So they'll start off by saying that you lied on your CD, which means there's a typo on your CD they found, or you got the year wrong that you graduated from somewhere. So that's one reason to be sure that when you submit a CD that it's really accurate. Um, that you made a rush to judgment, which is why it's nice to have in your notes a differential diagnosis and an explanation of how you eliminated things. They'll try to say, well, you've been to court three times and it was always the prosecution, so you always testify for the prosecution. So that's another strategy. Or they'll say, you're not an expert on orthopedics, you're not an expert on neurology, you're not an expert on genetics, you're just a pediatrician or you're just a nurse practitioner, or you're just a rocket scientist, or whatever it is you are, you're not an expert at all, um, which is another kind of um, approach they'll take with you. So rule number five is don't apologize for yourself. You are what you are. You are an expert in pediatrics, or whatever it is that you're testifying about, and it's okay to say that you're not an expert about everything. Another approach is to say, um, well, this was all, is all explainable by some other medical condition. And this has happened to me, not uncommonly. Um, well, Dr. Glasson, I've got a published paper here from a medical journal that says immunizations can cause a constellation of signs and symptoms indistinguishable from shaken baby syndrome. What do you think about that? Um, whenever anybody does this to you, it's a good idea to ask for a recess and take the paper and read the entire thing, figure out who wrote it, how long ago it was, what scientific evidence they relied on. Um, if you happen to know if it's a peer-reviewed medical journal, um, fine. If you don't know, it's okay to ask the lawyer in court because these are the kinds of things where you know something like this is wrong, you just have to figure out, well, where's the error here? Um, another strategy in the courtroom is to suggest that, well, yes, somebody did abuse this child, but it was really the 14-year-old, 14-month-old bro uh, brother who um, broke this baby's bones in 16 different places. So um, if they say, well, you can't say who caused all these broken bones, you could say, correct, I can't tell you who broke all the bones. But I can tell you, because I'm a pediatrician, that a 14-month-old brother cannot do this. So you have to know where your limits are. Um, you should be happy when you see this kind of thing on the stand, when somebody starts getting like this with you. It does happen occasionally. It's a sign that they are desperate. And the only way they can try to get the jury to think that you don't know what you're doing is to try to get really nasty with you. Um, it is all an act. I've seen um, defense attorneys be like this, and when they call for a recess, they immediately turn it off and they're like jovial and patting people on the back and having a lovely day, but they can sure look ferocious um, in a court of law. So whenever people get like this with you, the best approach is to just get more and more calm and relaxed and more and more polite and just not take the bait because the more you do that, the better you will look in the eyes of the jury. 
when you finish your testimony, even though you feel like fist pumping as you go out the door of the courtroom, it's a good idea to maintain your professional demeanor until you're out in the parking lot. Um, so you want to walk out even in a calm way. And afterwards, call whoever asked you to come to court and ask them how they think things went. Do they have any suggestions for future testimony that you might give? This is how you learn how to do it better over time. Um, in some cases, you'll be pursued by the media because, um, unfortunately, in the cases of child abuse, it makes for interesting press. Um, a good approach to the media is to tell them you don't have a comment. Even though the um, transcripts of a trial are public, and criminal trials in our country are public events, um, which is why TV cameras can find their way into courthouses, um, it's generally a good idea not to make any sort of public comment, unless you want to make a general comment like, um, we all should do everything we can to recognize child abuse and report it when we see it. A couple of other resources I'll mention just at the end here. There is a very nice pub, uh, policy statement from the American Academy of Pediatrics called Expert Witness Participation in Civil and Criminal Proceedings, which you can get on the AAP website. You can get the whole thing for nothing. Um, my favorite books to have, in case you're, you really want to spend a little more time reading about what you should do, are written by a psychotherapist named Stanley Brodsky. Um, he writes these very little books. See how thin it is? It doesn't take very long to read. They're divided into chapters that are about two pages long. Each one is just about perfect for a bathroom visit. Um, they're very entertaining. They were actually originally written for um, social workers and psychologists who get called to testify in court. So they're not directly medical, but all of the principles he talks about and how to handle things like nasty cross-examination are, are really very well done. So. I recommend that if you're interested in doing a little further reading on the topic. And I'll stop there and answer questions for those of you who um, may have them for me. Thank you. Thank you for that. It was terrific. Uh, you gave the example of the guy with the bone theory, which is one extreme. And maybe we can think of the other extreme, a case that somehow goes to court where the surgeon cut off the wrong foot. But in between all that, and certainly towards the middle, just like in our everyday practice, on common issues, physicians may have different opinions. How does that? How do you? How do you sort out the legitimate different opinions from the extreme kook? <laughs> um, I think the difference is that legitimate different opinions happen in a patient care setting. Um, but they don't happen in a court of law. Um, my experience in child abuse cases, which is how I end up going to court, is that um, the percentage of actual child abuse cases that end up in a criminal court is actually quite small. And part of the reason is that if a prosecutor is reading medical records and sees that there is a difference of opinion, they are not likely to take that to a courtroom level because they know that'll be the first thing that comes up, which is, well, was there a legitimate um, discussion back and forth about whether this was truly a case of child abuse or not? Um, it's, that's why we have conferences, multidisciplinary conferences, to talk about cases because sometimes there are legitimate concerns that we might not have the diagnosis right. And we try to be open-minded and understand that there can be different ways of looking at things. Um, what I was trying to address, talking about irresponsible testimony, are people who don't use the scientific method to approach a case, but use this sort of obfuscatory verbiage to confuse people intentionally. 
Michelle. Wendy, thank you for that talk. As obviously as a primary care doc, I see a lot of kids who I worry about. My gut strikes me wrong. There's discord in the room. There's a history of drug, alcohol abuse, homelessness, poverty. It could be from a very well-educated family in our community that is just challenging and difficult. Back in the day, we would use our medical records to communicate, so I could communicate with you, so I could communicate with my colleagues. But now, everybody can read my notes. You can download them. Um, the parent, one parent who hates the other parent, both parents can download my note that night um, and take a look at it. How do you advise us to communicate that level of concern? It used to say at the top of my chart, high-risk social situation. I feel uncomfortable putting that there now because I don't know who's going to read my note and who's going to use it for or against me or for or against that child in the future. Mm -hmm. Deb and Wendy can address how there are ways. Do you, do you want to comment? <laughs> okay, yeah. go ahead. Uh, so one, one I, I think I agree completely that's very challenging and I think it's very, now that we have electronic records, there are many situations where we really have to be very thoughtful about how we communicate, you know, with each other, and it, even the differing opinions about a case. We have to be very um, thoughtful and professional. Um, but one of the things that we can do in our version of Epic is you can put things on the problem list that do not appear on those downloadable um, records that the, the parent sees. And so, whenever you're making a problem list and you know, you may or may not want to use high-risk social situation, or you may, you know, even behavioral issues that have come up, you might want to put that as a, you, you uncheck the box that's automatically checked that says share with patient. And then, supposedly, that does not appear in the parent version. It will appear if you take those records to court. And it will appear if somebody accidentally inserts the problem list into their note, which is if there are some templates that have those things. That's, I think that that um, is a, one of those, like, sounds like it should be safe, but actually yeah. isn't, yeah. because of how other people's, not my template, but other people, and there's all kinds of templates that insert all kinds of things into them, and then that happens one time, and then poof, it's unprotected. So that makes me nervous, too. So, and, I, and I just had a related comment, if I might. So um, I thought that was great that you talked about, you know, when you're telling about families. One thing I just um, recommend when I'm talking to people about their notes is adjectives are great in your um, in your uh, exam. You know, it was read, <laughs> it was raised. But when you're talking about the family, it's much better, or the interactions, it's much better to avoid adjectives altogether. All so rather than parents loving with child, you say, um, parents were reading a book when I entered the room, which as the provider both helps me remember the family better and also is much less open to translation or, or being worked. Um, the other thing that I, brief comment I was gonna make is I, I'm really glad you approached that um, expert medical testimony for hire, expert in quotes. And I think one of the issues we're having now is that there's a real backlash in both the legal community and the lay press against child abuse and specifically against abusive head trauma. And so if anybody saw the recent things on PBS or in the Washington Post, um, those are good examples of, you know, credible press sources that are really putting out skewed versions of this. And so as advocates for kids, as people who work in pediatrics, I really suggest that we all have our elevator speech about how, you know, that's not scientifically based nor accepted in the pediatric community, that shaken baby syndrome is a questionable diagnosis. Even though the AAP has said that's not the, the term we use anymore. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if you can have your minute and a half about why the lay press is getting it wrong, I think that's really, really helpful. Thing. So, either of you, do you have a 25-second elevator speech you could share right now? Um, sure. Because um, you got a room full of advocates who can help do this right away if they get a 20-second, 25-second elevator. 25-second elevator speech. Yes, there are scientists and doctors who question the shaken baby syndrome, but they are outliers and they are in a community of outliers, which is at odds with the preponderance of the medical literature as it's been expressed for the past four decades. And every major um, 
medical association that has anything to do with children understands that abusive head trauma exists. And there are hundreds of medical publications in peer-reviewed journals proving that. Just because there is a dis disagreement in a courtroom doesn't make it a true scientific disagreement. And just because there's disagreement in the, in the press, a journalism disagreement is not the same as a scientific disagreement. So that's what I would tell people. <laughs>